We're in John chapter 17 this morning. When, when you think of the Lord's Prayer, you typically think of Matthew 6, when Jesus gives a model for his disciples, for their prayer lives, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But if we really want to see Jesus praying, we know throughout the Gospels that he prays often. He goes off to pray, goes up into the mountainside to pray, that he is away from his disciples sometimes praying. But if we really want to see him praying, it's here in John 17. This is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. This is us getting a window into Jesus speaking to his Father and how he's praying. This is the night before his crucifixion. This prayer is nearly the culmination, if you will, of an evening of him teaching his disciples. He has been preparing them for what is ahead, not only his crucifixion the next day, then his resurrection, his ascension, his parting from them, at least in a physically present sense. And so all of this instruction has preceded now when he prays and he starts in John 17, 1 and says, Father, the hour has come. That is the start of the prayer. If you have read it all through the Gospel of John, then that, that immediately says something to you because he has been talking about an hour that is coming. John has been preparing us for this, as a good author will do, carrying sort of the storyline through. John has been pointing his readers through the words of Jesus to say there's something coming. There is an hour, there is a moment in time that is coming, and everything has has continued to point to this. It is an hour that Jesus has anticipated since eternity past. It is an hour that he spoke of from his very start of public ministry at the marriage feast in Cana when he turns the water into wine. He says during the course of interaction there, my hour has not yet come. And for those who are listening and watching, they don't know at this point. What does he mean about this hour that has not yet come? And he will say that often throughout his ministry, that there is this point in time in the future. Now he prays and says, Father, the hour has come. The hour that Jesus anticipated before the creation of the world, the hour that brought Jesus, the Son of God, to flesh as a man that brought him to earth was this, to come and to accomplish the redemption, the salvation of sinners, to, to gather to himself, a people that he has forgiven, that he has saved. And so this hour means Jesus is about to endure the cross. This is the, the, the moment, the cusp, if you will, of when he will be nailed to a cross and suffer and endure the Father's punishment against sin, that which you and I deserve, because the God of creation has made us and has given us creation, and yet we have disobeyed. And so there is punishment deserved. And in that hour, for the first and only time in all of eternity, Scripture describes God the Father turning away as his Son, who knew no sin, Scripture says. There is no sin in him, is now made to be sin for us, so that in him he might be punished for our sin. And so our our rebellion, our hideous sin, our lying and our anger and our hatred and our lust and fill in the blank, all of that was charged in full to the perfect Lamb of God, who is Jesus. It was placed on him so that then the, the wrath, the just wrath of God against sin would be poured out on his Son, satisfying God's justice and then offering to you and I forgiveness of sin. 
So on this night before, Jesus is praying. He knows that the ones he is praying with are about to abandon him. One has already left to betray him. Another will deny him repeatedly during the course of the night, and all of them will scatter. They will run to get away from what they see as, as some unreal trial here. Jesus will be condemned, though there is nothing he has done wrong and nothing that he can be found guilty of. He will be mocked and beaten and whipped and brought out and displayed for public humiliation to try to satisfy a bloodthirsty crowd, and then he will be nailed on a cross through his hands and feet, and in his darkest hour will cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that hour when the Father turns as his wrath is poured out on the Son. What would your prayer look like on that night? How would you pray in the presence of those who might betray you, would abandon you, would run in that time? What would your prayer look like? We know that just a short time later, Jesus would go alone in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he would go and he would pray to his Father and say, Father, if you are willing to remove this cup from me, fully aware of not just the physical and emotional experience of the cross, but of bearing the wrath for sin, he says, Father, if, if you are willing to remove this cup from me, please do so. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. But before that prayer, there is this one, this one in John 17, sometimes called the high priestly prayer because he is functioning in an intercessory role, praying for not only the 11 disciples there, but all of us, also described as a prayer of consecration, sort of the point at which Jesus turns himself toward the cross completely now, dedicates himself to the sacrificing himself for sinners. Typically, if you've looked at this prayer before, it's divided up in three parts. First five verses, Jesus prays for himself. Verses 6 through 19, he's praying for those 11 disciples who are there listening to these words, John and the others. And then the last part of John 17 is Jesus praying for believers of all time. Not only for them, he says, but for all who will follow after me. And so uh, the prayer very simply breaks down that way. That's a great understanding of the flow of the prayer. We're going to take a little different approach this morning. I want to just look at the beginning and the end. I want to look at the bookends of the prayer because I think it gets us to see what the goal is of what he's praying. If we take anything from out of this, it should be seeing what Jesus is praying for and learning from that. If this, is what, if this is what Jesus is praying for, then I need to learn this so that I might emulate it in my own life. And so we will see from the beginning and the end sort of the goal of what he is praying for. And if you look at verse 24 for just a moment right toward the end, you'll see it here. He says in John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also, he's talking about all believers now, those here, those among the 11, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. There is the, the ultimate goal of this prayer, this John chapter 17 prayer. Jesus Christ is focused on his Father, and glorifying his Father, and on a people that he will save for himself. And so he prays for his followers, all of them, all who are trusting in Jesus today, not just the 11. His prayer for you is that you would see him in heaven in his glory. 
in the glory that he had before the earth was ever created, in the glory that he had from the Father. His prayer is that we would see that, that we would be in heaven and we would see that. That desire ultimately is what connects us back to the first five verses that start. When, when next week we'll go from verses 6 to 23, and, and that's, if you will, the means to that goal. He's going to talk about the, the, the work of ministry and, and of saving sinners and keeping people who trust in, in him, keeping them in the wicked world in which they live, protecting them, preserving them, until that day when his prayer is realized, which is, Lord, Father, Cause them to be with me so that they may see me in the glory that you have given me. Now, that may sound, if you're seeing that for the first time, that may sound egotistical. Jesus is praying that we would see him in his glory in heaven. If that's, if, if that's your thought, stay with me. Follow through and you'll see what it is that he's getting at here. But let's, let's look at the first five verses. John 17, 1 through 5. After Jesus had spoken, so he's just finished all of the teaching that we read in the prior chapters. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So there's something of a progression here. If you were just thinking of this in chronology, he's talking about glory that he had with the Father before creation. Then he's talking about glorifying the Father during his life in ministry on earth particularly now reaching this sort of pinnacle point of the cross, glorify me in this hour. And then the end of it is what we saw already in verse 24 and what he's leading to in verse 5, which is all of that pointing toward this glory that they will see, the glory that you had given me from before. So there's this glory before and after and then sort of a, a different degree, if you will, of glory in between. And we'll talk about what that is. But verse 5, he is praying that they would that there would be a greater glory, that there would be a, a glory that was like that which was shared between Father and Son. And it is that coming glory that he is saying in verse 24, Father, I desire that all of the people that you have given me, all of those that I have died for, I desire that they will one day be with me and see that, and behold that glory. So Jesus prays this. He prays it out loud in front of the disciples. Clearly, he's doing it out loud because he wants to teach us. This isn't just, just the part of him praying to the Father. There were plenty of times when Jesus goes off and prays on his own with the Father. This is one of those where he prays out loud because he is also seeking to teach in this. He's also seeking to give something that will serve his disciples and us today. If we are to understand this prayer rightly, a couple of questions that, that we need to answer first that, that I think will help us work our way through this. Number one is, what does it mean to glorify Jesus? What, what is this glory stuff that we sing about and talk about? Christians declare the glory of God. What, what is this glory? What is it to glorify Jesus? And then the second question that we'll deal with is, what is the difference between glorify me in this hour and then glorify me with the glory that I had before? 
sort of what's the degrees here in glory. So start with the first one, the, the basic one. What does it mean to glorify Jesus? Keeping in mind that the goal of the prayer is that you and I would one day stand before him in heaven and see Jesus in his glory. So he wants us to understand this because this is what he's praying for and presumably what he's teaching us to pray for, that we would long for that, to see his glory. The late James Boyce, who faithfully preached God's word at 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia for decades, wrote, few words in the biblical vocabulary are less understood than the word glory. What does it mean? What does this word mean that we throw around? The words glory and glorify in the New Testament are translations from a Greek word. That The root of it is dakeo, which means to ponder something, to consider it for the purpose of drawing an opinion about it, to reach some estimation about it. You and I do this all the time. Whether somebody is telling you a story and you're listening to it and you're evaluating their story or whether you're watching a movie on Netflix, you are interpreting you're, you're listening and you're hearing and you're, you're reaching judgments and you're making opinions about what you're hearing. This is the, just part of life. We are um, beings who are interpreters of what we see and hear and experience. We form values. We make judgments based on how we interpret the things around us. And so this root word at, at its core meaning is the idea of pondering it in order to give an opinion about it so that I can give my my take on, on what this is. By the time the writers of the New Testament, John and the others, use these same words, that, uh, sort of the follow-up to dakeo, doxa, the word that they use, by the time they use that in their writing, it, it has a much more specific meaning. They are, they are trying, as they use the word, to capture something that they see repeatedly in the Old Testament, where it speaks of the glory of God, and they're, they're trying to capture it in language that doesn't just say this is sort of a mere neutral opinion, but rather they very specifically mean this is the highest of opinions. This word glory, as it's used throughout the New Testament, has that, that sense that it is a very good opinion of someone or something. It is, it's roughly equivalent to praise or honor or renown. To give God glory, then, is to say, I am stating my highest possible opinion of who God is. God is perfect. In all of his ways, he is perfect. And so I, I can only give the very highest estimation that I'm capable of giving in human words when I give him glory. I am speaking of God in his greatness. And so as the New Testament writers use this, they're trying to capture the essence of what they see all throughout the Old Testament. Stuart read it to you in the call to worship from Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. The Hebrew word translated glory has the idea of abundance and honor. And so it's, it's actually even sort of getting a sense of that, that quantity of opinion. This is not just an idea about God or a opinion about God. This is the fullest, richest opinion of all because it is about the God of the universe. Giving glory to God is saying he is worthy of all praise. In all of his ways, in all of his attributes, God lacks nothing. And so when I speak of him, I speak of him as almighty, holy, all-knowing, all-present God. Because that's all qualities that Scripture describes him as. So 
In John 17, 4, when Jesus says, I glorified you, speaking to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, he's helping us to see what this looks like, this, this giving of an opinion of something. Because what Jesus is saying is that one of the ways that we declare the glory of God is by doing what he says. And so when he says in John 17, 4, here's how I glorified you, I accomplished the work you gave me to do, He's saying one of the ways that we show our high opinion of who God is is by changed lives. It's by how we speak, how we respond, how we deal with tragedy and triumph, how we act with people who are unkind to us. In all those ways, we can respond in ways that show God, that show people this is how God is changing my heart and teaching me to respond. And so Jesus has done that perfectly. I glorified you having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Think about this. If, if, if I come to you for counsel and I am having some struggle and you give me some wisdom about what you think I should do and you've thought about it and you've prayed about it and you said, Doug, here's, here's the counsel. And I say, that is, that is wonderful counsel. Thank you so much. And I go off and I do exactly what I was going to do anyway and completely disregard your counsel. What does that say about my opinion of your counsel? I told you it was wonderful and I was so glad you said it. And then I went and I did exactly what I planned to do anyway and I disregarded it. Right? That's what Jesus is saying. If, if we are to speak of glorifying God, we are, we're speaking of doing what he has called us to do, which is what Jesus did. A, a changed life and all of the evidence of him at work in us. Think back to John 14, 9, and the remarkable statement of Jesus. Philip has said to him in the midst of this discourse that Jesus speaking back and forth, and Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. And what is Jesus' answer to Philip at that point? You have seen me, you have seen the Father. That is an outstanding statement. Here is a a man standing before another man. One man saying, show me God the Father. And this man saying, see me? You see God the Father, right? That is is a remarkable statement. Jesus Christ did not claim to be a brilliant prophet, a very capable teacher, a good guy who showed people good things. He claimed to be God in flesh. He claimed to be the creator God. You don't stand there as a human being and tell someone you want to know who God is and see what God is like. Well, just look at me and you will see God. Hopefully by our lives, they get a sense for God changing a life, but but we're not so arrogant as to, to claim that you are seeing God when you see me because they're also seeing all of my sin. Jesus Christ could say that. And so by fulfilling his Father's will, Jesus Christ glorified his Father. He gave the highest possible opinion of the Father. By accomplishing his work, he is able to say, when you see me, you see the Father. It's, it's one thing if I, I, I say to you that you are wonderful and amazing. It's another thing if I actually take your instructions to heart. When you give me that counsel, I say, that is wonderful. I am going to do that. I am then giving a good opinion, not only of your instructions, but who you are. 
I, I hear something in what you're saying, and so I'm valuing that. Jesus glorified his father by doing what his father sent him to do. Now, that's what he did on earth. There seems to be in this passage, as I said to you at the beginning, this sort of degrees, for lack of a better word, degrees of glory. Glory that Jesus gives to the Father through accomplishing his work on earth. But then he says in verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. There seems to be some glory he is speaking of that he possessed before he ever became a man, before the earth and the universe was created, there was fully God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and his glory was evident even then, but it was just this greater glory. And what we, we gather from this prayer and from elsewhere in the New Testament is that Jesus, at the incarnation, at his birth, at his becoming a man, temporarily veils that glory. The, the magnificence of that glory is veiled in flesh, as we sing in the Christmas song. There's, there's something about that glory that man can barely grasp and cannot see in its fullness. And so Jesus, in becoming a man, at least temporarily veils the glory of God in the course of his humble obedience to the Father. So what's the difference then between the glory of the hour to come on earth and the glory of Jesus in heaven that he had with his father. Jewish listeners to Jesus in that day, Jewish readers of John's gospel, would have seen exactly what Jesus was getting at when he says, I long for the glory that I had with you before creation. That is, that is a, an unequivocal claim at being God, that I shared a glory with you in heaven is, is to say that the glory of God was something that belonged to Jesus. This is what leads to the charge of blasphemy from those who reject him because they know he's not just claiming some unique experience. He is claiming to be the glory of God, having been veiled in flesh. We see it often in the Old Testament that God, when he appears, is magnificent. His glory is just breathtaking. In Exodus 16... God appears to his people, verse 10 says, They looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. There is this magnificent, brilliant cloud that, that leads and that they follow, and it just lights up the sky. It is a pillar of fire at night, and it is the glory of God in their midst. It descends on the tabernacle in the wilderness, and it fills the tabernacle. Exodus 24 says that glory was seen in the cloud on Mount Sinai. It was like radiance and light. Isaiah 60, verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. The picture is that all of the earth is in darkness, and God appears, and there is this light. There is this brilliant radiance that is the glory of God. That, that is all throughout the Old Testament, and it is when, when Jesus says this, I long now for being with you and sharing in the glory that I had with you before creation, it is Jesus claiming to share fully in that same glory that the Jews had seen before on Mount Sinai and that they had followed that brilliant radiance. That is the glory that Jesus possessed in heaven. 
a glory that was veiled in flesh and seen only in a glimpse. If you remember the story of the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus takes with him James and Peter and John, and they go up on a mountain, and it is as if Jesus sort of pulls back the veil of flesh, and suddenly they see him in his glory, and they are stunned. They've known this was the Messiah and the Son of God, and they believe in him, but seeing it was something that was just awesome. It says in Matthew 17, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Luke 9.32, speaking of that moment, says, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. In that moment, those disciples got a glimpse of what Jesus now prays for in John 17. They got sort of the, the, the coming attractions. This is what he is with the flesh unveiled. This is Jesus in his magnificent glory. This is what he's praying for, that you would long to see Jesus for who he is, as God radiating the glory of the Father in heaven, a glory that he had willingly allowed to be veiled by flesh. When his work on earth is done, when he has given his life on the cross, when he has been raised to glory, he then ascends into heaven and he is exalted into glory, and that magnificent glory is no longer set aside. Jesus is now the light, the, the, the brilliant one, the one who illuminates all of heaven. And in heaven, the glory of God in Jesus is visible not to just a few select disciples who get a special moment. What Jesus is praying for is that wonderful promise that you and I, who trust in him today, one day, We'll see that. We will see Jesus is who he is. And it will be breathtaking. It will be what we were made for, to see our Savior in his greatness and radiance. And so in verse 1, his prayer is looking toward what's about to happen on the cross. He's praying that the Father would be glorified in his suffering. And, and that as a result of that, then, of him being glorified, the Father is glorified because what he is doing in that moment is he is giving himself to fulfill the Father's plan of redemption. So catch this. And when he says, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Think again about how we emulate this in our prayer lives. Here is Jesus walking toward the horror of the cross, the darkest moment that moment when the Father turns and the wrath is poured down on him, this, this moment that is dreadful in so many ways. And Jesus is walking toward it, not with a sort of resigned fatalism that, okay, this is the plan, I know I got to do it. He is going toward it with purpose and saying, Father, in this hour, glorify me so that I might glorify you. Take this hour that I came here for and use it for glory. He goes purposefully toward the cross to glorify the Father. He, he prays that way that he would glorify the Father because what he is ultimately saying is, when I am on the cross and your wrath is satisfied and the way is made for sinners to now be made right with God, you will be glorified. It's what we sing about when we, we sing about the work of Jesus on the cross and we we worship him because of that. Jesus prayed that the Father would glorify him through his perfect obedience so that ultimately the Father's perfect plan to redeem lost sinners would be put on display. 
that when we would look at the cross, now with the benefit of understanding God's plan in that cross, we see the horror of it and the suffering, and yet we also see in it the amazing sacrifice of the Son of God as designed by the Father who gave his Son in our place. Which is what gets us to verse 2 when he says, Since you have, Father, you have given the Son authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. The Father from eternity past has a plan of creation, knowing that man will fall into sin, and a plan of redemption to save fallen man. And, And that plan of redemption includes saving a people for himself. In doing that, the Father gave Jesus authority to lay down his life, to be the perfect sacrifice, to save people and to give them eternal life. It is his plan of redemption that is on display on the cross. And because the Son obeyed through the humiliation of the cross, he would be raised and exalted to glory and would receive the authority to give eternal life, the authority that he died for and rose again for because of what he accomplished. All of this, all that Jesus prayed for in John 17, is ultimately to glorify the Father, to say to the world, your creator designed in eternity past a plan to rescue you from where he knew you would be in the pit in the mire of your own sin and he set in motion a plan to save you through the sacrifice of his son the fact that it's all for the glory of God the Father is all through the New Testament. No better passage probably than Ephesians chapter 1, which essentially begins with almost a doxology of praise in Ephesians 1, which talks all about the plan of redemption and how the Father ordains it, the Son carries it out, and the Spirit applies it. And three times in Ephesians chapter 1 it says, to the praise of His glory. All of this points to the highest opinion of God, the greatness of God. He redeems. His son surrenders his life. The spirit applies that life to the hearts of those who are dead in sin and brings them to life. Why? For the praise of his glory so that we might be a people who would sing out with joy at the greatness of our God and would declare his glory. John 17.3 ties this all together. When it says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's a verse that will sometimes get used out of context. It is a great verse in describing eternal life. Intimate knowledge of the one true God. But this is not a standalone verse. Verse 3 is what ties this all together. In that what, what it's saying is, the only way to glorify someone is if you know them well. You can't glorify someone you don't know. You can't give a high opinion about something that you have no intimate knowledge of. If you do, it's probably just flattery. If I say to you, and I've, I've, I've just barely met you, and I say, oh, you are just wonderful. You are such a great person. You are so talented. Whatever it is that you're asking me about, you're going to do just fine. I'm sure you will. And I don't know you. I just met you. That is somewhere from flattery to outright lying at that point, because what do I know? And that's why Jesus says, the end of this is to bring glory to God. And the only way to do that is to know intimately the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Actual eternal life, salvation from sin, is rooted in the knowledge of 
the one true God and in his son, Jesus Christ. It is a knowledge then that gives me this high opinion. This is where biblical Christianity parts ways with every other religion because we are willing to make the claim that we believe this book, this Bible, reveals the truth about God, that it speaks the truth that is needed, and that anything else that claims to speak for or about God is man-made. This is God's word, and this is the one thing that tells us of the one true God. He qualifies it with that word true for the very reason that you, if you were to know this God, you must know him on the basis of how he has revealed himself. And so any description of who God is or what God does that doesn't comport with Scripture is not a description of the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And so what verse 3 is saying is, as far as our knowledge of, of, of the true God, your your theology, you may think, I don't have a theology, your belief about God what you believe about who God is and what God has done. And that could run the gamut from a biblical view of God to a view that there is no God. Your theology will determine your eternal destiny. And that's why he says that this is eternal life, to have an intimate knowledge of the true God, because you cannot glorify what you do not know. Those whom God has saved are able to give an accurate opinion about God and glorify him because we know him because he's shown himself to us, because he has revealed himself to us on the pages of Scripture. His, his work, Christ's work, his life and death and resurrection displays the glory of God and salvation. Those who seek eternal life must know him and believe those truths. There are not multiple paths to being right with God. There is one way, and it is through his Son, Jesus Christ, whom he is revealed to be the Savior. And so he is calling us to the knowledge of him so that we can give glory because we now see who he is, and we are in awe of what he has done. Jesus Christ finished the work of redemption. On the cross in John 19.30, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What was finished wasn't his physical life at that point. It was the work of redemption, the work that everything the Father had given him to do was now accomplished in his sacrifice in our place on the cross. And so therefore, Hebrews 10.12 can say, when Christ had suffered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It is it is now we've gone from accomplishing God's will and glorifying him to that great glory that he had before when it is finished and he is in the presence of his Father and he is seated at the right hand of God. That the accomplishment of that sacrifice is proven by the resurrection and the ascension into heaven and the fact that he is exalted to glory and now resumes the glory unveiled that he had before eternity. That's why he's praying for us to see that. This isn't some egomaniac saying, I, I just want you to see how great I am. This is our Savior saying, I want you to see that the work of redemption of the Father's plan is done and it's complete. And when you see me in my glory, you will know that it has been done. And he loves you and he has rescued you. So those last few verses, and we won't take as long on these, but I just want you to look again. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, believers of all time, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. 
Remember what? Knowledge, knowing him. And here he is saying, Father, the world does not know you. They, they may know there is a creator, but they do not know me in the sense of intimately believing in the true God of the Bible and Jesus Christ to me. But these, he says, these know me. And I long that those who know me, those who you have given me the authority to save from their sins, now will see the fulfillment of what they know. And they will see me in that glory that you have given me. That is the promise of Jesus here. We who belong to Jesus who have asked Jesus to forgive our sins based on his death on the cross and his resurrection to life, we who are trusting in him for salvation, the promise we have from him is one day we will see the one who completed the work of salvation, and we will see him glorified for having accomplished that plan of redemption. We have been loved by God. He has revealed his truth to us, and if you are trusting in him, he has saved you from your sin. Until that, that day, when we behold the exalted Lord of creation, while we are here on earth, we should be praying like Jesus. If there's anything we take out of this passage, I, I hope it is this, that in whatever circumstances you are facing, painful ones, tempting ones, really hard ones, ones that you thought you'd never find yourself in, painful ones, that even as you proceed to walk into those, you're praying and saying, Father, glorify yourself through me. Let people see a high opinion of you in this. Let them see someone who knows you, who believes your word, and who will be obedient as Christ was and will seek to do your will in the course of that so that, not, not so they pat me on the back and say, wow, you did awesome, but so that you can say, no, no, this is God. This is the work of God through me. And so if we could, we could adopt that to, to be able to respond to trouble and evil by pointing people back to the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Next week when we look at the, the rest of this passage, one of the things we're going to be reminded of is what we all know if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and that is when you, when you got saved, if you can point back to a particular point in time, you didn't suddenly get immediately transported to heaven, right? You're here. You're listening to me. You're stuck. See, you didn't get transported. We wish sometimes, don't we? It would have been so much easier if that moment that I trusted in Jesus Christ, out of here, into the glory, no more temptation, nothing else. It would have been so nice, right? The, the middle part of this passage, one of the things it's going to emphasize is, no, you didn't because he has you here in the world for the very purpose of you displaying his glory. He, through your unity with other believers and through your obedience to him and doing his will, you now have the privilege of doing what Jesus did, and that is, Father, glorify me. That, show your glory through me. Show it and display it through me so that people will see you as you work through me. J.C. Ryle, who was a preacher from a few centuries back, wrote this. Jesus' concerns in the prayer of John 17 show us the priorities of his heart. First, Jesus prays, not that the world would acclaim him, but that God would approve and glorify him. Second, Jesus prays that the events to come would glorify the Father. And third, Jesus devotes most of his prayer to petitions for the salvation and blessing of his people. The crisis of the cross reveals Jesus' dying passion 
for the Father's glory and for the salvation of those who belong to him. Our Savior loves us. God the Father loves us, and we who belong to him have a glorious promise from him that one day when this life on earth ends, either by death or by the return of our Savior, we will see him and behold him. We have all had moments in life when we've seen things, experienced things that seemed breathtaking, right? Think about that a moment. You, you can think of something. So, walking up to the edge of the Grand Canyon, some family member that you haven't seen for years walking towards you in a distance, those, those moments that just your heart leaps. Maybe it's your, your favorite team, and they have just made the play that sealed the game, and you are just screaming with joy because of that experience of that, that moment. Jesus is drawing us to see that there is no sight, no matter how wonderful it is, and frankly, he has given us creation so that we would see it and be in awe of it. None of that matches up to the day when we will see him in glory, to the day when we will stand before our Savior. We know this not only from what he prayed for, but John himself, at the very end of his life, exiled in Patmos, last book of the New Testament, John writes, Revelation, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and right near the end of the word of God, in Revelation 21, 22, John, exiled and alone, is given this vision, and he says, and I saw no temple in the city, this new heaven and new earth now. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Isn't that a wonderful scene? That one day we will bring anything of any value and worth and, and lay it at the feet of Jesus and thank him for what he has done and glorify him for who he is and what he has done. Let's pray together. Father, we... We need to see these things that Jesus prayed for. We need to see them in Scripture because they remind us, because we live in a world of jobs and challenges and family difficulties and sickness and hardships and traffic and things that just so want to draw our vision and our attention to everything around us and to discourage us and to tempt us to focus on earthly things. We are surrounded by a, a lust-filled consumeristic culture that wants to put images in front of us and, and claim that these are the, the beautiful, wonderful things we should look to and adore and, and pursue. We need to hear Jesus praying for us that our heart would beat for eternity, for the, the day when we will stand before Jesus Christ and that our longing in this life, Lord, would not be just for that moment, but that it would also be that you would use us to bring others to see the glory of Christ and to long for that day as well. Lord, as we begin a new week, help us to, to meditate on the majesty of Jesus Christ as he is seated there at your right hand. Lord, cause us to meditate on this sweet promise that one day we will see our Savior in the fullness of his glory. The fullness of the glory that he had long before we were ever 
born before this creation came into existence. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who is not sure of what that might look like, not sure if they are ready for that moment of standing before God, if, if something were to happen even today and they were to leave this life and not ready to stand before him, I pray that this day your spirit would show them that there is no self-effort. There's not enough good works we could do, not enough effort on our part that could somehow earn us away into that glorious kingdom, but that it is only by trusting fully in Jesus Christ, only by saying, God, I believe that Jesus died for my sin, and that he rose again, and I am trusting entirely in the work of Jesus Christ. And it is he I rest in and long to see. Lord, I pray that even this day you would stir in the hearts of those who do not know you, that you would take what we've talked about in your word today and give them the knowledge of the one true God and Jesus Christ, his son. Thank you for that. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ and the glory that yet awaits us, even as we sing now and we get just a foretaste of what lies ahead. Cause us to be rejoicing at how much more lies before us in heaven when we see our King, in whose name we pray. Amen.